Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I have with me John Hagel. He's a veteran of Silicon Valley, 40 years there, an ex-senior executive at Atari. He was the co-founder of the Center for the Edge. He's written numerous books. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So one of the things that perhaps you're most famous for articulating and is something that I've been using as a reference for years now is this idea of the of the big shift. Uh, could you tell our little listeners a little bit about what, what you mean by the big shift? Sure. I think one of the challenges we face in a, a rapidly changing world is we tend to shrink our time horizons and just focus on what's happening at the moment. A key element in my work has been to look at the long-term forces that are reshaping the global economy and society and try to understand what those forces are, what their impact is going to be. Uh, and our view is that it's, it, we are in the early stages of a big shift. Um, I think a lot more to come, uh, but already we're seeing significant impact. Um, and there are many forces that are driving this or shaping this. One force is certainly digital technology. Um, the exponential improvement in price performance has been going on for decades, and there's no sign of it slowing down. Uh, and it's creating digital infrastructures that connect us in much richer and real-time ways than was ever imaginable in the past on a global scale. And then another force that's related, but uh, I think has its own implications, is we as customers are becoming more and more powerful and more and more demanding. Uh, we're more powerful because we have more visibility into the options that are available to us. We have more information about those options. We can switch from one vendor to another very quickly. And our expectations are, are rising as a result. I think one of the things, ways I can describe the past century is um, what I call the industrial bargain with the customer, which was, you know, if you want affordable products and services, we can deliver those to you. But they have to be standardized mass market products and services. That's the only way we can make them affordable. Well, we as customers increasingly are unwilling to accept that bargain. We want something that's tailored to our individual needs and will evolve as our needs evolve. And so that has dramatic implications as well. So those are just two of the forces. But our view is that it is leading to a need to fundamentally reassess the assumptions about what's required for success and to create value in this changing world. Right. And, and so what are some of the underlying assumptions that are challenged then? <laughs> oh, many. Uh, so one, we have many ways of describing the big shift, but one is... Um, we're moving from a world of stocks to flows. And what we mean by that is, in, in again, in the past century, the way to create the source of economic value was proprietary stocks of knowledge. You develop some proprietary knowledge, you aggressively protect it from everyone, anybody accessing it, and then you efficiently extract the value and deliver it to the marketplace. That was the key to success. Increasingly, in a rapidly changing world, stocks of knowledge depreciate at an accelerating rate. They become obsolete. So our view is in this new world, the key to creating value is participating in a broader range of knowledge flows, more diverse knowledge flows, so you can learn faster and refresh your knowledge stocks at an accelerating rate. Very different culture, very different way of operating um, your institutions. So that's, that's certainly one way of representing the big shift. Another one is from push to pull. This notion that in the past, the way you mobilized and organized your resources was you developed a forecast or prediction of demand, and then you pushed all the relevant people and resources into the right place at the right time to meet that demand. Well, again, in a world of increasing uncertainty, those forecasts and predictions are more and more difficult. And in that kind of world, our belief is the institutions that will be most successful are those who master the power of pull. 
how to draw out people and resources when you need them and where you need them at scale. I'm not just talking about two or three people or resources. I'm talking about thousands, even millions that can be pulled in when you need them and where you need them. So that just a couple of examples, but those are pretty fundamental in terms of challenging our assumptions about what is the source of value and how do we mobilize and organize resources. Right. And as you say that, one thing that comes to mind is the example with Tesla and open sourcing their patents around the electric car technology. Is, is that a good example of sort of letting go of the stocks and being more willing to engage in the flow? Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, certainly um, an illustration that we're beginning to realize that we're going to learn a lot faster if we connect with others and invite others to participate. I think, you know, another example that's going on right now with the pandemic is this notion of open sourcing and, and connecting, networking together researchers so that they can come together and learn faster about what this virus really is and what's going to be required to uh, develop a, uh, a, you know, a uh, treatment for it. So I think that it's, um, it's, again, it's very challenging because we've been brought up to believe that you protect your knowledge, you, you hide it from everybody else. And I, I see a kid you know, putting their hands around their work, right, at the school, at the school <laughs> right. desk, yeah. Yeah, go away. Don't, don't, don't come near me. <laughs> right. Sure. But I guess, I guess the challenge for that in my, in, in my mind and maybe others' minds is, um, so how do you make money out of that? That all sounds very philanthropic. You know, I give, I give my knowledge away. I, you know, I, I get engaged with creating new knowledge. But how is that commercialized? How do we, how do we make business in that context? You make, you make a business out of it because you're coming up with new ways to deliver more and more value to customers and to your stakeholders. But you're not, you're not uh, diluting yourself in the belief that that's, all, that's going to be a permanent source of value. You're constantly driven to learn more so you can evolve those products and services as rapidly as possible and get them out to customers. So it's a constant drive to get better and better in addressing the evolving needs of the customers. I mean, one of the things that gave me inspiration on this was I first went to China back in, um, the early 1980s. And <clears throat> I was pretty impressed with a lot of the entrepreneurs that I saw in China. And I came back and talked about it to my Silicon Valley colleagues. And they said, oh, don't worry, John, that, you know, they have no intellectual property protection in China. So if they come up with something really creative, you know, it's going to get copied and they're, they're not going to make a living out of it. But what it did was it actually induced this, this culture of constant learning and constant innovation. They were in a race to innovate faster because they knew that whatever they came up with was eventually going to be copied by others. So it, it induced this, this very different culture where they were connecting in much more interesting ways with other entrepreneurs to, uh, to continue to innovate at a more rapid rate. Right. And, and when you, you think about that sort of paradigm of working, I suppose I imagine that this is going to be then lots of relatively free agents, small firms, you know, rapidly iterating uh, and staying ahead of the curve. And yet we seem to be in an age dominated, perhaps more than ever, or seemingly, certainly in certain sectors, by these huge firms. So how does that come to be true in this Oh boy, well, that's a longer conversation. I, many different dimensions to it. I'd say certainly in the short term, what what I see happening is there's mounting performance pressure on the traditional institutions, and so they are they're driven by a model of what I call scalable efficiency. The way to succeed is to become more and more efficient at scale, and one of the ways to get more efficient is to get more scale. So go out and do M&A, acquire your competitors, acquire other companies in the marketplace and get that scale. And so I think that's the, what's driving a lot of the uh, concentration right now is this M&A activity to get scale. I will say that 
again, having been in Silicon Valley, I've been struck that there's a, a vigorous debate that's been going on for decades about the future uh, here in, in the Valley. And there are two sides to the debate. One side basically argues that we're all going to become free agents, independent contractors, you know, we'll connect for particular projects, but basically companies are dinosaurs, going to fragment down to the individual. Other side, equally passionate, says no. In fact, because of network effect, we're going to see four or five mega global corporations capture the vast portion of the wealth over time, huge concentration, and everybody else is going to be marginalized. Interesting debate, two extremely different views of the future. I took on this debate. Um, and in perhaps in classic consulting fashion, I came up with the answer that both sides are right. It just depends on what part of the economy are we talking about. So without going into too much detail, I've written research reports on it, but the fragmentation, I believe, is going to occur in what I call product and service businesses. Businesses that are focused on coming up with a product or service to address specific customer needs. And that's where this notion of being more and more focused on smaller niches, very profitable businesses, but very small businesses. They're addressing a very small part of the market. On the other side, there's a whole set of businesses that I describe as infrastructure management businesses, high volume, routine processing kinds of activities. A good example would be a, a, a outsourced computer a data center. Um, or a logistics network where you're coordinating logistics on a global scale. I believe those, mark, those companies and businesses will become more and more concentrated on a global scale. So we're going to see concentration there. Other piece, which I more speculative, but I think huge opportunity, another type of business is what I call customer, customer relationship business or trusted advisor. These are businesses that are going to focus on getting to know you as an individual customer better than anyone else and develop the trust so that you can connect those customers with whatever products and services are most relevant to them at any point in time. And with more and more fragmentation of products and services, more and more rapid evolution of those products and services, we as customers are gonna really value that kind of trusted advice. But we have to trust it, it has to be trustworthy. And I think it's um, one of the reasons I'm so intrigued in it is I think those businesses have what I call economies of scope. The more that I know about you as an individual customer, the more helpful I can be to you in terms of addressing your needs. If I just see a small segment of who you are, you know, I can be helpful on the margin, but not as much as somebody who sees me in my entirety. And then the more other customers I'm serving, the more, uh, help I can be to each individual customer because I can see patterns and say, you know, you haven't even asked about this product or service, but it could be really valuable. Customers like you are getting enormous value from it. So anyway, long No, but, the, but that, that's fascinating. But, but I suppose the, the, counter, the counter argument there might be, well, hang on, isn't, isn't it going to be that the very largest players have that kind of data and insight into you because they can track your movements across, you know, many domains, you know, thinking of a Facebook or an Amazon or whatever. So, so isn't it actually the, the countervailing argument that no, that it will be the big players who, who have that intimacy and that yes, trust? I mean, there, there are a number of issues. I, I won't go into all of them, but I think part of it has to do with just mindset and culture. The companies that are going to be really successful at infrastructure management are high volume routine processing. It's all about doing the same thing at scale everywhere, not tailoring down to specific individual customers. And another issue, which I think is a big question mark right now, is many of those businesses today that have emerged are driven by either advertising revenue or commissions from the vendors. And I mentioned this issue of trust with the customer. If you're being paid by someone else, not by me or the customer, I'm gonna not trust you. I know who's paying your bill and it's not me, so you're not serving my interests. I believe the trusted advisors that will ultimately succeed 
are those who are going to be paid by the customer. That will ensure that you're serving my needs, not somebody else's. And so I think there are some interesting challenges for those who are on the infrastructure management side to really address that trusted advisor need. Right, right. Uh, now, the other thing you talk about, which I found you know, very interesting, was that uh, in this new paradigm, where we're going towards this power of pull, so we've not got a, a forward forecast where we're trying to sort of push resources in a particular direction because we've made some assumptions about the market need. We're going to allow ourselves to be pulled by the customer uh, 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 into more and more sort of tailored offerings, I suppose, for those customers. Passion becomes important. So why, why does passion link with this idea of pull? Yeah, explain that. Oh, boy. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons I've become very focused on the topic of passion. I, it began with some research I did on, uh, again, a theme in, in the work I've done around the big shift is that on one side, the big shift is creating mounting performance pressure on all of us. We're experiencing intensifying competition, accelerating pace of change, extreme events, a lot of pressure. The paradox at the same time is the big shift is creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create much more value with far less resource far more quickly than would have ever been possible a couple of decades ago. But the, the focus is on um, First of all, just addressing that mounting performance pressure, how do we deal with that? And in that context, I went out and looked at environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. And um, environments pretty removed from traditional business, everything from extreme sports, big wave surfing, extreme skiing, to online war games, where if you make the wrong move, you're gonna die. There's a lot of pressure on you. Uh, and what I found in all those environments, despite how diverse they were, was the common element in all the participants was a very specific form of passion. And it's what I came to call the passion of the explorer. And it has three elements to it. One is these people who have this passion are committed to a specific domain for the long term. They're not just passing through, they're committed to be there and not just be there, but have an increasing impact in that domain. That, that's what drives them. The second element is a, what I call a questing disposition. They're excited by new challenges. That's an opportunity for them to have more impact in the domain they have. And then the third element is a, a connecting disposition. People with this passion, their first instinct when confronted with a new challenge is who else can I connect with to help me get to a better answer faster so I can have even more impact. So they're extremely connected. And I think if you pull all those together, those three elements together, the passion of the explorer, people who have this passion are motivated to learn very rapidly. They are driven to learn. That's exciting to them. And they're learning faster in part because they're connecting with others in much richer ways. So. I think that uh, those who have that passion are going to be the ones who are really most successful. Um, you know, I have two daughters, and when they were growing up, they, when they asked what they, what they should focus on or become, I said, look, they said, just find a passion. Don't stop until you, you know, keep exploring until you found the passion that really excites you and motivates you, and then find a way to make a living from it. And that's the way you'll be successful. It's rather than just say, oh, you know, one of the common things now is, oh, you should become a coder, a programmer. Well, yeah, yeah, but if, you don't, if you're not passionate about it, if you're not driven to learn faster as a programmer, if you're just doing it because you were told that was the place to be, you're never going to be success, as successful as those who are passionate about it. So find something you're passionate about. Now, now, we could say that that's always been true, right? So, so why now is that particularly you know, more true or more important for people? Well, I think in particular now it's, it's true because of the, the rapid pace of change in the world. I mean, in the past, you know, yes, if you, 
your parents told you to become a lawyer. You just master the law of the moment and, and you'll be reasonably successful. The, the world's not changing in that rapid way. Today, given the pace of change, if you're not driven to learn faster, you're going to be marginalized because it is a world of mounting pressure. There will be those in your domain and your profession who are learning faster, and they're going to be a lot more successful than you who just went to school, got your degree, and thought that was, that was it. Right. But the other thing that you say, which is perhaps a bit controversial, is that this, that this spreads across the industry, right? It's not, or across, I suppose, all layers of, a, of an organization. Uh, you know, it's not just the knowledge workers. You know, firms should be seeking out uh, passionate bricklayers and passionate <laughs> burger flippers. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Oh, I, it uh, Again, it's another piece of work. And I should say that all these topics we're covering, I've done research reports on. And if you want to go into more detail, by all means, just uh, search for the topic and my name and chances are you'll come up with a research report. But this whole notion of... Uh, redefining work. I think one of the, it's a challenge and opportunity is that if you think about the, what, what most work is today in large organizations, large institutions, it's tightly specified, highly standardized tasks. You do the same thing every day in a particular prescribed process. Um, The, the challenge here is that Increasingly, technology is able to do those kinds of routine tasks much better than we humans ever could. They don't get distracted. They don't get sick. So that work is being taken by the machine, and it leads to this question of, well, wait a minute. So what are the people going to do? Are they going to lose their jobs? And again, in a world of scalable efficiency, my experience is most senior executives, when they talk about the future of work, they only have two questions. One question, how quickly can I automate? Second question, how many jobs can I eliminate? Because that's the way to become more efficient. Cut costs. Where can I cut the costs? Cut the worker. My view is that actually the untapped opportunity is to take those workers who were previously consumed with these routine tasks and redefine their work is addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value in whatever context they're in. Because in a more rapidly changing world, context is evolving at a more and more rapid rate and new problems and opportunities are emerging. The problem is most workers in the past were so consumed with those routine tasks, they had no time to even see the problems and opportunities, much less address them. I think now that that's the opportunity. And, you know, I use the example of janitors in, in large facilities. You know, as the routine tasks get taken over, just cleaning and all, washing and all the rest, these people know that facility in a much richer and deeper way than anybody and observe how people are using the facility. And they can come up with ideas about, wait a minute, you know, this facility, if we, if we, added a hallway here, if we did something over here, they, the people could get a lot more done. So I, my belief is every, every particular job that's today in, in a company, you know, a janitor or a factory worker, a maintenance worker, all those people could be creating much more value for the company if they were freed up from those routine tasks and given not only the permission, but the encouragement to find ways to create more impact and value. And if they developed a passion around that, if they were really excited about that and said, oh my God, this is my chance. Right. And so that you see that as being the, the principal challenge is, yeah, I mean, you talk about this in your book, um, The Power of Pull, is that it becomes less about thinking about training for my employees based on our future set of needs of the company. It's more about trying to find passionate employees and then trusting them to follow their passions. Is, am I getting that right? Yes. And it's, it's also creating environments that nurture and cultivate passion. I think an interesting example, you know, I keep getting the, the uh, pushback of, well, you know, some of us are capable of passion, but most of us 
just want to be told what to do and get the security of an income. And that's what makes us happy. You know, a counterexample to me is, is what Toyota did with factory workers in their factories. And they basically said, look, they went to the workers and said, look, yes, you have some routine tasks. This is an assembly line. There are certain things that have to be done, but your real job, your real job is to see problems and address those problems where as soon as you see them don't just file a problem report solve the problem and it was very interesting because it brought out a high level of passion in those workers now they were actually making a difference they weren't just doing the same tasks that anybody else could do they were seeing problems that nobody had seen before and addressing them and creating more value for the for the factory so I think it's an example that even the most manual labor kinds of, of workers, if given the right environment, can develop that passion. They were not passionate about factory work, you know, in prior, prior times, but now this brought out passion, this cultivated it because they see, saw that they were making more and more of a difference and um, excited by the challenges of making that difference. And as you see it, that that possibly exists, that possibility exists in all types of firms. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't want to say I don't want to be interpreted as saying everybody can become passionate about factory work. Some of us are not <laughs> passionate about factory work, and uh, but it's it's a. I don't think it's just. <clears throat> a, you know, I I often hear executives interpret some of my work as saying, "Well, we just have to hire passionate people." But the problem is if you hire passionate people and put them in environments that squeezes out that passion, um, <laughs> I, I have to tell a story. I, I, this was several years ago, a senior executive from a major tech company in Silicon Valley was giving a talk and he said, you know, we have uh, passionate people in our organization. We call them the pizza people. And he just went on uh, in his talk, but during the Q&A, somebody raised their hands and said, wait a minute, why are they the pizza people? Why do you call them pizza people? And he said, well, it's simple. He said, these are people who are absolutely essential to our business. They come up with the creative new products uh, for our company. He said, but we, you could never put them in front of senior management because they, they deviate from their script. They would say things that would be very embarrassing. And so we keep them in a locked room in the back of our facility. And every once in a while, we slide a pizza under the door to keep them fed. So those are the passionate people. He was joking a bit, but I think he was highlighting that in today's organizations, the scalable efficiency world, passionate people are suspect. They are people who are constantly challenging um, the, the established ways of doing things and wanting to take risks and doing things that weren't part of the script. And that's not acceptable in a scalable efficiency world. So even if you hire passionate people and then you put them in that world of scalable efficiency, you're going to crush that passion and they'll either leave or they'll lose their passion and become very ineffective. Right. Um, yeah, it reminds me of, of, of somebody I came across at, at another large tech firm who, who I guess was, would have been one of those, but extremely passionate about what he did. And one of the, after he'd given a talk, one of the executives says, yeah, he's great. We have to put a wrapper around him, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but, but I think the script <laughs> metaphor is a good one, right? It, it relates to this push idea. It's like you create the script, the, the blueprint for the organization. You almost have scripts for each role. Right, and then you expect them to follow that script, and so I guess we're moving to more of an unscripted. What you're talking about here is a paradigm that's more unscripted. Exactly, where you focus much more on outcomes and impact. What's the impact that's meaningful, and then give people the freedom and the tools necessary to address and create more impact. And so it's it's not tightly specifying every piece of activity but getting clarity and, and connection around what really matters in terms of impact and to the stakeholders. And then how do we deliver that? Right. 
But is there not a kind of golden mean here, right? Like if, you, if you're too, uh, if, if everybody, if you give the whole organization over to people's passions and right, and that the whole environment just becomes about facilitating individual passions, uh, do you then lose the ability to sort of make any efficiencies by routinizing, you know, certain aspects of your work, right? Is there a, is there a golden mean here? You know, there's there in the academic world and increasingly in the business world, there's a um, a concept that's uh, been known as the ambidextrous organization. You know, yeah, we need some creativity and innovation in one part, small part of our organization, but then we need the rest of the organization to just do the routine tasks and efficiently. Um, my view is number one. If you look at the examples, the cultures of those two in a single company, the efficiency part of the company inevitably crushes the innovative, creative side of the company. Efficiency can't stand all that innovation and creativity, crush it. And even more importantly, I make the case that one of the implications of the big shift is the scalable efficiency model is no longer efficient. It's becoming less and less efficient because it assumes you're in a stable environment and you can do the same tasks repeatedly and, and get the same result. First of all, number one, if the, to the extent there are those activities, those can be done by computers and robots today. Routine tasks, great, program it and get them done. But then, we're living in a world where the context is more and more rapidly changing. And if we don't have people focused on how to read the context, first of all, see how it is changing, and then be creative about how to address it, we're going to become less and less efficient. I'll say just as a, a, a side note on this, we did a survey actually many, many years ago uh, in some large companies of uh, how how workers spent their time. It turns out, and this was across many different departments in the organization, um, roughly 60 to 70% of the workers' time was being spent on what was known as exception handling. It was, they were confronted with an exception that the process manual had not anticipated. And so they were scrambling at the last minute to try to figure out, what do I do? How do I address this? and get back to my assigned tasks, because I'm gonna be punished if I don't get back to those assigned tasks. And so they were, they, they, the majority of their time was being spent very inefficiently because they were in organizations that didn't want them doing this activity, wanted them doing the routine tasks. So anyway, I right. think the, the paradox is the, the most efficient approach to uh, business today is not scalable efficiency. Right. It's cultivating that what I call scalable learning, where everyone is learning faster in whatever environment they're in. Right. And that's interesting because because the other thing that you contrast in your book is this. So we, we have this idea of the learning organization. And you contrast that with with actually this idea that it's not just about learning within the organization. It's about people going out to the edge and participating in creation spaces. So could you yeah, could you just give us a little bit of a, an overview of what you mean there? Oh, boy, a lot of the different elements there. First, I should emphasize because, <coughs> sorry, I'm often misinterpreted when I talk about learning. Most people think, especially executives, think I'm talking about training programs. You know, that's how employees learn. They go to a training program, they learn something, they come back. No, in a rapidly changing world, my belief is the most powerful and necessary form of learning is not training programs. It's not sharing existing knowledge. It's learning in the form of creating new knowledge, something that was not known before, and doing that through action, not just sitting in a room thinking great ideas. It's by seeing a context, addressing it, seeing what kind of impact was achieved, reflecting, and refining that approach so you get even more impact. That's the most powerful form of learning. And again, this is based on, on work we've done, research we've done. I've come to believe that um, no matter how smart you are as an individual, you're going to learn a lot faster as part of a small group. 
and in my experience, it's anywhere from three to 15 people who come together, develop deep trust-based relationships with each other, and share a commitment to getting more and more impact in whatever environment they're in. And uh, those cells, or I call them impact groups now, working groups, those are the, the units that are gonna drive the most uh, rapid learning. And they're gonna be in the front lines of the people at the bottom of the organization, not the, I mean, it, it can also apply to senior leadership as well, but the, to, to make sure that the, we organize the front lines in this form. And then to your point too, it's this notion of if you're really serious about learning at scale, you can't just learn within your organization. You have to connect with more and more people outside your organization and develop relationships with them if, to uh, figure out how to have more impact in a particular area. And in that context, it's this notion of taking these small groups, these three to 15 people as the core unit, but then connecting them in networks and platforms where they can learn from each other at scale, more and more of these small groups coming together on what I call learning platforms where they're able to share information, insight about the, the approaches that they've pursued, ask questions of each other. And that's the creation spaces environment that increasingly involves people from many different organizations, not just one, one company or one institution. Yeah, and I think that for me was one of the biggest, you know, perhaps the biggest single shift in perspective that I got from the book was because, you know, I come from this world of sort of, yeah, this, understanding of the Toyota production system, you know, agile ways of working, where it's all about us inspect and adapt, look at our process, try and improve it over time. Yeah, but generally within the team or within the organization, and you're saying, well, actually, there's another way to look at change. And it's, it's not just that. It is about getting out there, connecting with others, creating new knowledge, getting out onto the edge. And that, I think, is quite, a, you know, it's quite an important point and does represent quite a big shift. It, yeah, it's a major shift. I, I use one example that is not very well known, but I think illustrates my point. It's uh, I ask people, you know, have you ever heard of a company called Portal Player? And I get these blank stares. Nobody's really heard of them. And I say, well, have you heard of the iPod? Everybody's heard of the iPod. And the, the mythology that was established was that one day Steve Jobs, brilliant man, in the privacy of his office came up with this incredible idea of connecting an online mu uh, music service with a digital music player. The story is actually a little more complicated. It starts with a group of executives from a, a, a leading semiconductor company who saw the opportunity in digital music players. And so they went off and created this startup called Portal Player. And at the time, this was well before digital music had become a consumer product. They saw huge technology challenges in many dimensions from quality of music to the size of the device to the affordability of the device. A lot of issues, technology issues. They organized a global creation space, if you will, that brought together leading edge technologists from many different parts of the world, many different domains of technology to engage in problem solving and they rapidly evolved the platform for a digital music player. And the, the, it's to a point where it became a realistic mass consumer device. <clears throat> and then the other side of the story is there was an executive at Philips Electronics who came up with this idea for a, connecting a, an online music service with a digital music player, <clears throat> presented it to his uh, leadership. They dismissed it. He resigned immediately. He was very passionate about this opportunity. And uh, he went knocking on doors in Silicon Valley. One day he had the good fortune to meet with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, to his credit, when he heard this idea, said, this is brilliant. You're hired. And he said, you have nine months to get this first iPod out into the marketplace. And this guy, recognizing that he couldn't possibly do this alone in nine months, remembered he had had a meeting with Portal Player. So his first call was to Portal Player. The initial Apple 
iPod device when it was introduced was basically a portal player platform. So um, I think it's an interesting example. Yeah, I think I think that's a great example. But it must I can imagine that this idea must sort of terrify some some executives, right? This idea that I'm just going to let my employees loose, go connect essentially with competitors, you know, create, you know, God knows what out out there. Uh, and, and on a sort of trust that somehow, you know, it, it will repay itself in ideas and innovations back into the organization. Is that is that what you experience when you share this with executives? Or? What's the reaction? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's complicated. I, one of the things, and it's the focus of my next book, I'm just finishing the writing of it right now, but I, I've been struck by over the past several years when I, when I travel around the world as part of my work, and I was struck by <clears throat> wherever I went, the dominant emotion that I was feeling, experiencing, was fear from senior leaders of large organizations to frontline workers to people out in the community, fear was the, the big emotion. And at one level, I think it's very understandable because we're in a world of mounting performance pressure. And even very senior executives realize the job, you know, their tenure, average tenure in a senior job is shrinking in time. Um, they're at risk of losing their jobs. And so they're very afraid. And if you're afraid, you tend to erode trust. You don't trust people. And so you want to close everything up and go back to what made you successful in the past, scalable efficiency. That's the way we'll just squeeze harder and we'll make it through. But I think, again, that's a very dysfunctional response. And the challenge is how do we move people from fear to hope and excitement so that they're really motivated to take risk and connect more broadly and learn faster. Right. And this, this connects all the way back, right? If you've got these passionate uh, explorers, then they're going to be up for that, right? They're, they're going to be hopeful that you know, we'll make some connections and it will work out and we'll find a new edge and, and we'll succeed, right? So it's it's the sort of going from an offensive a defensive to to more of an offensive stance. And, and I I also emphasize that the I've researched and spent a lot of time with passionate explorers. Um, they're all afraid. They have fear. I mean, you talk to a big wave surfer who's about to go out and you know ride this wave that <laughs> has killed people. You know, they're afraid, but they're excited, and the excitement overcomes the fear. They're moving forward in spite of the fear. It's not that the fear goes away. It's just that they've got a, something that motivates them even more and, and enables them to really learn faster. Right. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I can, I can see how this, this works together as a sort of you know, a cohesive, I suppose, philosophy on how we ought to be approaching business, right? The, yeah. No, well, the challenge for me is everything that I've done is connected in one way or another, but it's that becomes so complicated that I have to find ways, you know, slices of the the topics and themes to really engage with people on. But it is all connected ultimately. Right, right. And um, now I guess this relates a little bit to my early reflection. But the other thing you're famous for, or at least for me, for me, right, is, <laughs> is this is this this concept of the topple rate. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so I guess talk a little bit about what you mean by topple rate, you know, what you found you know, up until this point and where you see it going, especially again in the context of right now, we do seem to be dominated by these very large uh, organizations that show no sign of toppling anytime soon, you know, just in sort of immediate consciousness. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Topple rate has many different dimensions to it. I mean, one one study that's gotten a lot of attention is <clears throat> it was not done by me. It was done by somebody that I know. Um, he looked at uh, in the United States at companies that are listed in the S and P five hundred, which is one of the elite groups of companies. And he went back to nineteen thirty seven. This is the height of the depression. Talk about challenging times. If you made it onto the S&P 500, you were on there on an average of 75 years, well beyond the, the career of any CEO. So you, once you got there, you made it. You could relax. 
fast forward to 2010, um, the average topple rate uh, had declined to 15 years. And that's how quickly you fall out once you've made it, how quickly you, you fall out. Once you made it, you, you stay on there only for 15 years and then it, you, you topple off. And so, and it's continuing to erode. So that, that's, I think, an interesting example of the mounting performance pressure. And part of the fear that all these executives are feeling is they, they realize that no, long, no matter how big they are and successful in the short term, there's more and more risk that they're going to topple. Another example research we did was we looked at companies, again, in the United States, we said, let's look at companies who are in the top quintile of uh, return on assets, key measure of profitability and performance, who's up in the top quintile. And we looked at their topple rate, how once they made it into that top, did they stay there or did they, they topple out of there? And is one of the key measures of the big shift is the topple rate of those companies is accelerating. So even if you make it into the top performance uh, tier of companies, you're going to topple out at a much more rapid rate. And so I think it's a, a, an important message to all of us that we are in a world of accelerating change and what made us successful in the past is no longer going to be necessarily the things to give us success in the future. And we need to be constantly challenging ourselves to, to stay ahead. Right. And, and you've seen no sign of that slowing. So right now it, <laughs> 20, it's not slowed down. It, no, no, no. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely been a long-term, I mean, we go back, um, in our, in our analysis to 1965, which is about 50, more than 50 years now. Um, and yes, there are waves along the way in terms of, you know, some years are better than others, but the long-term trend is very clear and it's very consistent in terms of erosion of performance and increasing topple rates. And so our, our belief is that should be a key message. The, the old approach, the way we, we drove success in the past is becoming less and less effective and need new approaches. Yeah, and the, and the other implication for me from that is that it, perhaps a shortcut in the past for people looking to achieve performance gains would be to look at those firms who are doing really well, right? Yeah. And, I think, and I, think that, I think that's a bit of a trend within the industry that I work in, you, within the sort of management consulting spaces, we say, ah, you know, here's a good example of a company that's doing really well. You know, how can we learn from them and, and share the best practice, right, with, with other companies? Well, that seems somewhat flawed as a as a concept right if yeah no i think it, it's a challenge to really uh focus on the things that are fundamental versus transitional or or temporary and really again that's part of our message around start with looking at the long-term forces that are reshaping the world and then pull in to say okay what are the approaches that could lead to success in that kind of changing world because if you don't start with that and just look at those who are successful today, well, today, tomorrow is going to be different from today. And so good luck. Yeah. And, and, and again, back to this point about, so the, so the emphasis here is not on trying to learn from, from these successful organizations. It's about creating new knowledge, right? It's less about, okay, what are, what are Apple doing right? Or what are Amazon <laughs> doing right? It's like, no, how can we get out there and create new knowledge you know, in the, the creation spaces that we can form or participate in? Yeah, I think it, there are two elements to it. One is that um, it's focusing on what are the unmet needs that are increasing over time in whatever markets you're serving, because there are more and more unmet needs. And on the other side, being thoughtful and creative about the new tools that are available to address those unmet needs. I talked earlier about this notion of the big shift creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create much more value far more quickly with far less resource than ever before. So if we see an unmet need that's becoming very significant over time, what can we do creatively to make this an exponentially expanding opportunity? And that's the mindset that I think 
And it ties also to a notion that I'm increasingly focused on, which is we need to look ahead and really fight this tendency to become very short term and say, okay, as given these forces, what's the world going to look like 10 to 20 years from now? And what are the really big opportunities out in that world that we could be addressing? And then focusing in the short term on what are the specific actions we could take today with very short term impact to start to learn through action how to address that much bigger opportunity. And that's uh, called the zoom out, zoom in approach to strategy. But I think that becomes really central to success. Don't get locked into just reacting to whatever's happening today. But isn't there a contradiction in what you're saying there? Because didn't, didn't <laughs> we say earlier, didn't we establish earlier that, that we can't really predict the future? And that's, and that's why these push approaches don't work. But you're saying, well, no, we can look 10 to 20 years out. Yeah, help me there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it's a question of detail. I mean, when I talked about uh, the push approaches, these are forecasts of how many units of this particular product are going to be needed in what part of the world or what segment of the economy. That's a forecast that is becoming more and more challenging and impossible. The, the zoom out approach that I'm talking about is looking at a very high level at the future and saying, what are the trends that are reasonably predictable? And the example I use is actually many, many of the most successful Silicon Valley companies use this approach. But one company that's been written about is a small startup in Redmond, Washington, back in the mid 1970s. It was a company called Microsoft. And the founder, Bill Gates, pursued a zoom out, zoom in approach. And the interesting thing is, zoom out for him. He looked at the computer industry and his zoom out was in two sentences. So computing is moving from centralized mainframes to the desktop because of the technology trends that are reasonably predictable. Second is if you want to be a leader in the computer industry, you need to be a leader on the desktop. It wasn't a detailed forecast of demand, but it was enough focus so that he could figure out what's really important. Where, where do I need to learn? Where do I need to pull people and resources together to learn faster about how to be a leader on the desktop? And it drove enormous success for him. It was at least a 20-year uh, forecast, or not forecast, but prediction of the future, but high level, not detailed view of what the computer industry is going to look like in all its detail, but enough so that he could focus his near-term actions and learn faster. Right. Okay. I see. Yes. Um, now, the other thing in this context that, that come, comes through in the book is this, this idea of, of sort of managing for serendipity, you know, that serendipity is, is becomes more important. Yeah. T tell us a bit about that. Oh, boy. It's a favorite theme of mine. I've got another book that I'm <laughs> still wanting to, to write on this itself. But it's this notion that everybody talks about serendipity and luck as just something that happens. You know, you, you, um, uh, <clears throat> um, the best thing you can do is just be prepared for it when it happens, but out of your control. My, my view, and, and part of the reason I'm so focused on serendipity is back, it's all connected, it's back to learning. Some of the most powerful learning occurs from unexpected encounters with people you never even knew existed, but you get into a conversation with them and they come up with this really brilliant idea that helps you solve the problem that you've been wrestling with for years. Um, and in that context, my view is that actually um, you can shape serendipity. You can't make it a certainty, but you can in significantly increase the probability of that serendipitous encounter. One small example, and I think this is a global trend, is more and more people are moving from rural areas and small towns to large city. There are many or at least they were until three months ago. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I, my belief is this will, this will persist because one of the values of, of living in a large city is you have more serendipitous encounters. If you're in a small town where you know everybody, well, there's no serendipity. You know everybody. You got to run into people you never met before. And you're going to do that much more in a large city. Another small example is just 
I, I ask senior executives how tightly managed their calendar is. If they have appointments from you know breakfast until after dinner um, every day, there's no serendipity there. They know in advance exactly who they're meeting with. What about just walking the halls or going outside and, and attending some kind of meeting that you hadn't expected to? Now you suddenly are opening up possibility of meeting people that could have really brilliant insights for you. And that serendipity increases. Right. But again, then that links back to trust, interestingly, right? Because I can't, I can't have an open calendar as a senior executive unless I've, I've got a lot of trust in my workforce, right? To, to go out there and make decisions. Yeah. Right. So if I'm, so, so if I'm micromanaging, then of course I've got to be tied down, right? In, into all my encounters. Yeah. Well, and it, again, it ties back to fear too. If I'm afraid, I don't want to be exposed to new people or other things. I just want to do what I've, you know, been trained to do and comfortable doing. Yeah. Or at least if my response to fear is one of anxiety as opposed to excitement, right? Then. Well, exactly. If you don't have yeah. passion about what you're, what you're doing. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the one thing that we have in common, John, is we were both for you, for you fairly recently, a for, former employee of Deloitte, right? Yeah. <laughs> management consulting firm. And, um, so the question I, I sort of gr grapple with as somebody who has worked for a big four and now still, I suppose I still use the label management consultant. Yeah. In this big shift, are we part of the problem or part of the solution? The sort of management consulting class in general. <laughs> uh, it's classic answers. It depends. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the challenge for consulting just as much as for all other large institutions is how to move from this world of scalable efficiency to scalable learning. And I think the way traditional professional services have been organized and, and delivered to market, it's been around expertise. You know, I have the expert on this particular topic that has the answers to whatever questions you have. I can guarantee we'll have an answer. Versus, you know, the the management consultant who's much more of what I would describe as the trusted advisor who comes in number one and invests the time getting to know you as an individual and building some trust so that we can work together and will freely acknowledge that I don't have all the answers, but I can help connect you with the relevant people and resources that can provide the answers. And by the way, they're not in my, company. They're not in my organization. They're outside. I'm going to connect you with whoever can be most helpful to you. And I think over time, that's going to be the consultant that will become the real uh, valued uh, change agent, if you will. And the other element of a trusted advisor, which I think is challenging for many professional service firms, um, Today, I'm generalizing, there are exceptions, but certainly most professional service firms are focused on being very responsive to the client. You wait for the client to ask a question, and then as quickly as possible, you deliver an answer. In, the, in, this, in this new world, it's much more around the notion of being able to just say, I don't know, and also challenging the client and saying, by the way, you're asking the wrong question. Here's why. Here's what the real question ought to be. Or here's a question you've never asked, but you really should, because it's really important for you. Challenging the, the client helps to build trust. Again, if, if I'm the client and all you're doing is waiting for me to ask for something, I may trust you in the sense that you'll answer my question or, or respond to my question, but I, I don't trust you in the sense that are you really committed to making me as successful as possible? Right, that requires right. challenging me, not just waiting for my questions. Yeah, I could see that challenge and and the the other and connecting, right? This yeah, what can, what can I connect you to that's going to maybe enhance the chances of serendipity or have you create new knowledge in a new sphere? Right, that's a that's a very different role actually to the responding to the RFP and. Delivering on you know, the, you know, what you've asked me to do, right? Yeah. And being willing to say, I don't know. I mean, mm. that expression of vulnerability is key to building trust. 
If you tell me you have the answer to every question I have, I don't trust you. I know you, you don't have a clue what the, how complicated the world is or how rapidly changing the world is, so I don't trust you. So being willing to say, I don't know, that's a great question. Let me work on it and find the people who can really help you answer that question. Right, and, and that in itself is a shift, right? Because sometimes the, the route to feeling trusted at some level was to be the, the most certain guy in the room, right? The expert, the expert yeah. who has the answer to all the questions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Right, right. Okay. Um, well, I think this has been, you know, a, f a fantastic, you know, conversation. I've really, uh, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, is there anything, is there one question you might have expected me to ask that I haven't asked? Is there, is there something that hasn't come up that you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, there's so many questions in the world. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> we covered a lot of ground, I think, you know, the, starting with the context of the big shift, but then what are the implications in terms of what's required to have impact and really focusing on passion as a key uh, motivator to drive learning. Um, those are certainly key themes in the work I've been doing. Brilliant. Okay. And so for people who want to dive more, so obviously they can Google you for, for the papers, you know, on specific topics yep. we've talked about, there's the power of pull the book, which I could thoroughly recommend having really actually listened to it on the audio. It's very good audio. Well, audio. There are six other books. If you're really that interested, uh, just search for, for me as an author, there'll be an eighth book coming out, uh, hopefully early next year. And um, then I also have a website, uh, johnhagel.com, and I have a blog post there where I, I post regular blogs, and um, I'm very active in social media, so you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Great. sharing things on all of those sites as well. Fantastic. So we'll put all of your links to your uh, you know, social profiles uh, in, the, in the description. Um, Fabulous. All right. Well, thank you once again uh, for beaming in from your home in uh, just outside San Francisco. Absolutely. <laughs> A pleasure. Thank you very much. Great thank questions. You. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to First Human dot com